All right, we should be live. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for a monthly Ask Anything live Q&A with Wealthion's endorsed financial partners. As usual, I've got uh, lead partners John Lodra and Mike Preston from New Harbor Financial, as well as Lance Roberts from Real Investment Advice. Guys, how you doing? Hey, good morning, Adam. Good morning, Lance. Morning. Good morning. All right, folks. Well, we, we said at the beginning of the year we were going to try to be good about uh, doing this every single month. So this is uh, the one for February. Uh, kicking things off here where the year has uh, started quite strong from uh, the market standpoint. Um, and I think the big question that's on uh, everybody's minds right now is, does the current rally uh, really have legs uh, or not? Or is this, you know, sort of like a like a roach motel for bulls where they come in, they get a rug pull and, uh, you know, we end up having another year like last year. Uh, probably far too early to tell for sure, but I know you guys are all watching the tape very closely. Um, I think we let you New Harbor guys kick off last time. So Lance, why don't I just toss the football to you high level? Um, I know we talked a lot about this in just this past uh, weekend's market recap, but what are your sort of general thoughts right here as the year has started? Well, you know, first of all, it's a little bit of a misnomer. You know, this is always the problem with benchmarking from January the 1st to December 31st. You know, yes, the S&P is up 7.7% this year so far. As of Friday, uh, does, the market's a little bit sloppy today, but um, NASDAQ's up 14.5% since January. But that is not really the story because the rally began at the lows of the market in October. So, you know, the market is up substantially from the October lows. You've got uh, the advanced decline lines across the board are becoming much more bullish. Breadth is improving. Um, a lot of your sentiment indexes are becoming much stronger here. Uh, the 50 days crossed above the 200-day the moving average, so you now have the official golden cross in place. Um, and you have an inverted head and shoulders, which is a normal market bottoming process that is now completed to the upside. Um, all of that says right now that momentum and the bulls have the wind at their back. You know, markets have gone a bit far. Um, over the last couple of months. So I'd expect a bit of a pullback here, but any any pullbacks to support that holds and turns up, I'd definitely be a buyer here. All right. And, and I want to ask one more question of you before I give the New Harbor guys a chance sure. to respond. So when we talked over the weekend, you said that um, you would be watching very closely if the S&P gets down to that 4,000 support level and if that were to hold and if it were to bounce strongly off of that to you, that would be a really bullish sign uh, in the sort of near to midterm that the markets could run a fair amount higher from there. Is that still true? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very true. You know, markets got three standard deviations overbought, you know, last week. And again, you're know, kind of following the, the Fed speech, you know, the the whole idea of not really being focused on monetary conditions by Jerome Powell's a really good flub. Um, that shot the market higher, but markets got really, really overbought here. So as always, when markets get extended, they've got to pull back a bit. So, you know, what we're looking for here is if this, and then and here, here's the big caveat, if this is going to be a continued bull rally, we should hold support at that 50, 200 day moving average crossover markets rally, get above the highs from last week. And then that suggests that potentially you've got targets of 43 to 4,400 on the S&P um you know through the end of the seasonally strong period which gets us to about may okay all right um so you're kind of thinking okay if we do have that big bounce you, you'll be thinking this could go as high as 4300 4400 yeah. um all right um john i'm coming to you next just real quick folks just some housekeeping so again the whole purpose of these uh, live q a 
sessions is to answer whatever questions are burning most in your minds. So use the live chat uh, to answer your questions and I'll do my best to be pulling from there. Um, all right, John, so um, love the sort of the New Harbor general outlook on the start of the year. And if there's any reaction to what Lance said, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, um, it has been a very uh, big start to the year. And, and, and to Lance's point, it's been a, a big move off the October uh, lows. And basically what we've seen over that time frame is a market that went from pretty darn oversold, not extremely so, but pretty darn oversold, to one that now is is very overbought on a short-term basis. So, you know, Lance's comment there about um, uh, probably a little extended in the near term, maybe thinking about um, adding some exposure on a pullback might be more prudent. We agree with that, but you know we got to take a step back here and, and recognize where we are in the in the cycle. And it comes down to position sizes for folks that are worried about uh, you know their 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 financial assets and the and the preservation of that. This, these are trading moves we're talking about here. Um, you know we still have uh, stock market valuations amongst the most richest in history. We have a very um, muddled um, monetary picture. Uh, the reaction after the Fed meeting last week was nothing but uh, jaw dropping and uh, confounding at the same time. Uh, I'll note that Jay Powell is scheduled to speak tomorrow at an economic conference. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was a last minute ad uh, after the press re press uh, conference he held last week. So who knows? There could be some talking back of some of the um, market uh, cheering that happened last week, uh, reading into a, a, a more dovish Fed. Um, you know, so we think it's still very, uh, very undecided. Um, this is not the first time that we have seen the market over the last year poke above some some critical technical levels. Yeah, there's been maybe a, a couple of bit more uh, confirming signals here and, and breath has been a bit more strong. You know, we look at things like the bullish percent indicator, which has been quite strong. Um, so there is there is definitely a, um, a bullish bit uh, that's kind of been been put in the teeth of, of some investors here. Uh, that certainly can uh, you know, uh, cause the market to, to fuel higher here. Um, there's a tremendous amount of short covering going on, which is, in effect, an artificial source of buying demand as, as folks uh, cover the shorts. But we agree, if there is upside here, it's, it's pretty muted. Uh, you know, we, we don't disagree with Lance's targets there of 43, 4,400, which is a pretty modest move up here. So you know, for folks that are thinking long-term investing, this is not a... Uh, a move that we think should dramatically change your tilt to equities here. There's still a very muddled picture. And if, if anything, a, a, a kind of a smallish tactical tilt would be appropriate. Okay. And um, there are uh, some good questions here I want to get to in just a second. Um, but because you, you mentioned it, John, and, and it's sort of the elephant in the room, you talked about the Fed. Uh, Mike, I'll ask you, um, uh, you know, there's, some of the recent conversations I think I've had with all you guys, that the markets really seemed to hear what they wanted to hear out of the Fed's uh, announcement last week and Powell's presser. Uh, and if you actually go and, and, and you read the transcript of what Powell said or listen to what he said, yeah, he could have been more forceful, but he didn't really change his tune, right? And he, he basically intimated that there was going to be a lot of coming uh, you know, downward pressure uh, on the economy from the delayed uh, you know, rate hikes, that the, the delay of the impact of the rate hikes that he's already made, right? So, um, uh, you know, John just said that Powell's going to be talking later this week. And uh, my question is, is Mike, pardon me? Tomorrow. Sorry, tomorrow. Um, and uh, so, Mike, my question for you is, do, do you think Powell is going to, you know, 
basically say, all right, you know, you guys didn't hear me right last week. And uh, he's going to be a lot more tougher uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the message he delivers at, at his speech tomorrow. Yeah, maybe, Adam. It's impossible to tell and, and to speculate is kind of futile. But yeah, I think that Powell must be frustrated. You know, the market rocketed for two days after Powell talked. And then I think it was um, maybe it was Friday where there were some strong economic numbers, jobs numbers, and the market started to sell off on that. In other words, the data was too good. So everyone's guessing what Powell's going to say, what the Fed's going to do. It's There's no secret that that's all that's really mattered for a bunch of years. That's all that still matters. Like John said, you know, we're still hyper overvalued. Technicals are starting to improve. We can't deny the firming up in many of the different bullish indicators or indicators that are tilting bullish now. So we have to consider doing some tactical moves. Having said that, we're still going to be very muted in our response. We prefer to do anything on a pullback. And if we were to take off right from here, we're probably not going to jump in in a big way. Um, we, we we might take some hedged positions, but it's a difficult it's a difficult situation. It remains a very very dangerous and difficult market, and you have to have your stops predefined. You have to have an exit plan predefined. As far as what Powell's going to say tomorrow, I I really have no idea. Technically, chart wise, the market wants to jump, so maybe it's going to find whatever reason it wants to to do that. Um, but but again, we're going to be very measured and muted in our response and very careful with some very uh, appropriate exit plans if we do anything. You know, right now, we still have a pretty large cash position in Treasury bills with lots of dry powder to respond to whatever happens. So you know, we'll see. I, I think that Powell must be frustrated. I think if I had to guess, and you're asking me to guess, I think his words will be stronger. I think he wants to talk down the market. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. All righty. And uh, I'm going to use one of my cool little tools here. Um, I just want to show you said Powell being frustrated. Um, we've talked a lot about this of late, guys. But um, this is a chart showing the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index. And you can see here, you know, outlined in yellow that uh, conditions are substantially looser despite the 450 basis points of rate hikes that uh, Powell has done at the Fed since March of last year. Um, so, you know, he, he's trying to get everybody to he's trying to tame the animal spirits and instead they're just they're just running wild outside the corral here um all right well look we've got some great questions here um i'm going to pull this one up because it uh applies to both you guys and lance i think you even just uh maybe gave an answer to this question on saturday which is for fixed income investors who are holding short-term u.s treasuries are we at the point to extend duration Lance, I, I think if I remember correctly from talking over the weekend, you had said that you guys were beginning to do that with your bond portfolio was to go further out, correct? Yeah, not yet. Um, so, you know, you know, technicals apply to bonds just like they apply to stocks. So um, when you get technical sell signals that suggest that you're going to have price movements in one direction or the others and, um, you know, yields have come down quite a bit from their peak. And, and so... Um, they got really overbought here and they're now on a sell signal right now, which suggests in the short term. And I, and, you know, to Mike's point, you know, I, I do think that Jerome Powell is going to try to correct, you know, his, his speech. You know, he, he made this comment uh, during his pressure last week that in the short term, monetary conditions don't matter. Um, you know, long term they do. And, and I don't think that's really what he meant to say because they yeah. do matter in the short and long term. I think he'll try to correct that somewhat tomorrow, but, 
you know, the, the jobs report on. So, yeah, several economic indicators that are improving a lot that have a very significant impact on the economy. Uh, the jobs report on Friday was extremely strong, but that was all seasonal adjustments. You and I talked about that. 80 percent of the economy, though, is now services. That services index, the ISM services index, went from 49.8 to 55 um, last month. And so it's a huge jump back into expansionary territory. Um, the Citigroup uh, Sup Economic Surprise Index is improving fairly sharply here, which is also going to give you a tailwind economically here short term. So in other words, the data is coming in less bad than what the markets have been expecting. So that's encouraging kind of this action in the market. So that's all suggests that with the Fed, you know, where they are, they've got to hike rates two more times probably now. Um, the Fed fund features are over 5%. So that's suggesting a little bit more pressure on bond prices near term. Interest rates move up on the 10-year treasury, but somewhere in here pretty close, uh, we're getting to a pretty good opportunity to um, increase the total duration of our portfolio. We won't go strictly all long in, but we'll start building our ladder out on a, on a bit longer duration profile in, in, in our bond structures. Okay. Um, I am going to ask this question then on bonds to, uh, to you, Mike. Um, what do you think of bond funds such as the Dodge Cox Income Fund? Um, I'm not super familiar with that one, um, but I am with the second one. Or short-term bond ETFs like Bill. Uh, this person's nearing retirement in the next couple of years. They're currently allocated 60-40. Well, like, you know, BIL, the ETF BIL owns one, two, and three-month U.S. Treasury bills, if I remember correctly. It's right. not a bad option, you know, for people that just want to buy that because they can't or don't want to buy the individual Treasury bills. We buy the individual Treasury bills for clients, but BIL is, is not a bad option. You're going to, you're basically going to get the yield of Treasury bills minus whatever the ETF charges. Uh, for expenses. I'm not sure what the SEC yield is on it. I, I'm not that familiar with it and I didn't look it up, but it's probably right around 4%. So buying BIL is not a bad option if you don't have access to a money market fund that's all in short-term U.S. treasuries. Go ahead and just buy BIL. I think the other question was about a particular Dodge and Cox mutual fund. I, I got to say I'm not that familiar with that. So I don't know what the uh, the composition of that fund is. I don't know what the credit quality or the average uh, maturity or duration is. And so, frankly, I would I would use some kind of a barbell strategy. Uh, it's often called where you're you're very heavily tilted towards the short end of the curve. Uh, I know there's some point here soon where yields will probably stop going up. We're probably already there, and that you're going to want to nail some. Uh, some long-term interest rates down. You know, we suggest heavy weighting again towards the short end, but maybe go out 15% or so in the long end. In our portfolio, we, we happen to own a couple different ETFs. One example is TLT, which owns U.S. Treasury bonds that are greater than 20 years in, uh, in duration or maturity. And I believe it owns something like 30 different bonds. I think that's a good way to participate in, in, in some appreciation potential in long-term bonds if yields have indeed stopped going up on the long end. Uh, we think they're likely to actually drift downward from here and, and funds like TLT will probably go up. So I can't give advice on the specific fund, but I would, again, be very heavily in short-term T-bills or BIL and dabble in the long end. We might 
uh, have some different opinions about how much, but 15, maybe even 20% on the long end. And if you're investing in individual uh, treasury bonds, you might simply want to start dollar cost averaging into the 10-year bond instead of TLT. You might do that for 10 or 15 or 20%. So that, that's my best answer on that one. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Hey, John, a question that came up uh, recently in the YouTube comments were people saying, hey, you know, there's, uh, you know, corporate debt. Um, I think I think the message we heard from a lot of people over 2022 was ah, it's kind of risky right now. The, the, the risk return isn't isn't quite there, especially when compared to the risk return of, of treasuries. Um, but but now you've got some really big companies that are like almost risk free entities you know, like Apple and Microsoft, just sitting on massive cash hordes. Um, and, and they're paying a little bit above, you know, what, what the treasuries are right now. Um, does it make sense under the current market environment uh, to be buying those bonds? Um, or is the risk return um, advantage still on the treasury side of things? Yeah, the corporate bond market is is one that deserves some, some, some deep inspection. Um, you know, at the you, you talked about the high quality companies like Apple. Um, I guess I'd, I'd first like to caution about some of the lower quality uh, corporate bonds. Um, you know, some of the, the the bonds are always priced as is what's called a spread to risk free treasuries, and the spread on, for example, junk bonds, high yield bonds, right now corporate bonds, is about a, as low as it's been at any time in uh, you know, I think the last couple of years. So it's it, the, the the spread is not compensating, in our opinion, nearly enough to warrant uh, taking on that risky debt right now. Even at the lower end of the investment grade spectrum, triple Bs, um, it's a, it's very, very low uh, spread to tre uh, treasuries uh, going back quite a, quite a while. Um, frankly, I don't have at my fingertips right now the the spread where we are on, on the high high end, high quality stuff. But I do think we're going to start to see some opportunities in the higher quality corporate um, realm. Uh, I'd want to see those those uh, make, make sure the spreads are, are adequately um, you know, kind of compensating for for the risk because we do we do have a pretty murky economic picture here. Um, you know, companies are Apple and some of the big companies are laying off. That tells me that they've got margin pressures. Um, you know, certainly could could uh, I don't expect to see you know vast downgrades with some of those larger larger good quality companies. But um, I, I'd first want to kind of I'd piggyback off of Mike com Mike's comments. I think it still makes sense to have. Kind of a barbell strategy but by no means a go all in kind of yield environment here we think there's probably going to be some better opportunities to 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 scale into fixed income whether it's corporates or treasuries uh at some point in the future and, and having some amount in the longer longer uh end of the curve makes sense is if nothing else a hedge for the vagaries of of which way they go um but but uh, you know bring it full circle I, I do think it's 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 going to be timely probably within this 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 these next few months to start to, to look at some uh, higher quality corporate credits, uh, especially if we get a yield event here that, that kind of spikes yields in the short term. Okay, great. Um, and there's so many questions coming in, guys. I'm just I'm just hopping from question to question here. Lance, coming to you, um, I've got two questions for you um, because I think the first one's super quick. Um, uh, this person asks specifically about should they lock in a, a one-year um, or 18 month CD. And I think they're thinking of putting a quarter million dollars in there. Um, hard to answer that question without knowing the person's, you know, personal financial situation. But my question to you is, is um, how do you help someone differentiate between putting money into a CD versus say like a treasury? No, they're the same thing. When you're talking about a one year or 18 month CD, they're the same thing. 
back in my former life, I used to match the deposits to CDs. So, you know, when somebody buys a CD, what you give up is, you know, if the treasury rate is just say 4%, as an example, um, the CD is going to pay some amount less than that. So you give up some of that rate because the bank's got to make a profit on this. So you give up some to have this CD that the bank says, okay, here it is, and you can redeem it at maturity. Um, this goes back to the other question as well on uh, the gentleman that was close to retirement, 60-40 allocation. Dodge Cox Income Fund is a great fund. PIMCO is a great fund. They've been around for decades. Uh, Jeff Gunlack's Line Total Return Fund is an awesome bond fund. Uh, you pay a little bit of an expense ratio to have them manage your bond portfolio, but those are great choices to have a great bond manager managing your fixed income portion of your portfolio. So I highly recommend it. And they're also doing looking at credit markets and allocating accordingly relative to that. So if you don't know how to manage the bond portfolio, let them do it for you. You'll be happy with them long term. Now, they have underperformance near term, just like everybody else. The mistake that everybody's making right now is chasing the short term yield. Everybody's jumping out buying bill or we've got a we've got a crap load of people buying bill right now and and you know they're buying one year CDs and, and they're missing the bigger picture, which is great. You're gonna lock in this four percent rate for one year, or they're just piling into money market funds at four percent. That's awesome. Here's the mistake you're gonna have. When rates come down and they come down sharply, and they will at some point your CD or whatever you've got is going to mature in 12 or 18 months. You're going, great, I got 4% for the last 12 months. Now what are you going to do? Because now all the yields are going to be back towards zero on the short end. Yields on the 10-year treasury will be 1%-ish um, if we get into a recession. And you've missed all the capital appreciation that you would have picked up on the long end of the bond curve. So everybody's looking at these short-term returns right now. Go, man, I'm getting 4%. You're missing the bigger picture, which is what happens after this very short-term period. So this is where it gets really important in managing your bond portfolio and, and matching that duration to what your needs are, particularly on the long end. If you need to generate income, I would be locking in much longer durations in my bond, por bond portfolio here because this is probably about as good as rates are going to get on, on treasury bonds in particular for the next 10 years. Okay, great. That's sort of where I was going with this. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know the 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 risk of of getting into um, you know either locking yourself into a short term uh, short duration product that then renews soon or as a floating rate that is getting whatever today's short term rate is that will go down as rates begin to come down. Uh, not only do you you give up if, if rates do come down substantially, you give up the current return you're getting, but but you miss out on all of that capital appreciation. Yeah, about, like right? everybody was piling into tips ETF last year. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, and that that's been a terrible performer ever since then. Tips the tips price has been come down, so that tips ETF has been under a tremendous amount of price pressure. So again, it's always important to make sure and match what it is you're trying to create in terms of return or capital appreciation, how that all works with your portfolio, what your objectives are, and make sure that you're doing the right thing. Too many people are focused on the short term and they're missing the long term. Yeah, um, great point. And, and again, that's really underscoring why we love to have you guys come on the channel so often that people can really hear uh, what, what goes on inside the mind of a financial advisor, because most people do not ha know how to build a bond portfolio, construct a bond portfolio like you're talking about, Lance, that gives them the ability to take advantage of short term stuff, but then also has positions to, to lock in the duration that they need in the long term for their goals. Um, all right. I want to I want to re-ask my question about the CD just real quickly. Um, so if, if, if a bank uh, is offering uh, 
a CD that's basically sitting in treasuries and you're having to just peel off some of that return to give it to the bank, why not just buy the treasuries themselves directly from an instrument like Treasury Direct? Because most people just don't know how to do it. And, and you know, this, and really this is what it comes down to. It's, it's ease and convenience. There's nothing wrong with buying a CD, but it, you also have to go back and ask the question is, why are you buying a CD for 12 or 18 months? Do you have a need for that capital? In other words, uh, you know, just as an example, you and I have been talking about, you know, I'm looking for a house. By the way, I've been outbid on three houses in the last month. So I don't know where this housing correction nonsense is coming from, but it ain't. <laughs> but the point is that if I have, you know, we're trying to buy a house. So I might lock up some money for six months in a CD, get 3% of my money, but I need that money for a specific purpose in six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever it is. So a CD is fine for that. But don't buy a CD just because it's giving you a short term yield that you like. Because again, this goes back to what what is what is the purpose of that money? Is that money needing four percent for the next ten years, or is it needing three percent for the next six months? So, as with all investments, you have to make sure that the investment matches the duration of whatever the the option use for that money actually is. I don't know if that all right. I've, I've got another question that I know Lance is going to have a strong opinion on, but I'm going to ask it to you guys at New Harbor first. Um, I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Uh, I've kind of gotten drowned here in questions, which is a great high quality problem to have. Uh, but the question, I'll try to find it while you're answering, but the question was basically about annuities. Um, and guys, I know that annuities have kind of a bad rap. Um, here they are. Here's the question. Um, they've kind of gotten a bad rap. I, I think we could probably say they have been abused at times by financial advisors who were not using them correctly for the interests of their clientele. Um, but I do believe that there are ways in which annuities can be intelligently used uh, for people's, you know, retirement planning. Um, this is a specific question about cashing in an annuity plan. Um, if you if you have a specific answer to this question, um, John will direct it to you. Great, um, but but more holistically, can you just sort of give your guys' current opinion of annuities and when, if ever, it makes sense to consider them? Yeah, we, we know a lot about annuities. We rarely, if ever, sell them. Um, so, so take that for what it is. Um, but I wouldn't also take that to mean that they're inherently uh, bad and inherently always wrong. Um, we just happen to think there's oftentimes better solutions. Um, candidly, the question here is a good one, but we, uh, we, we would need to know much more information about this annuity to give you pointed advice. It sounds like... Um, the reference to the annuity company taking 14%, it sounds like it's probably a variable or, or even a fixed or, or indexed annuity that has what's called a contingent deferred sales charge. Basically, if, if that's in fact what it is, and that's a pretty high one at that, so I'm, I'm a little surprised by that. Um, it's, it's basically to compensate for the fact that most annuities are sold by brokers who get paid up front commissions, fairly large commissions. So this very well may be the insurance company's way of kind of recouping the commission that they may have paid out to, to the, the broker. In this case, again, we don't know enough information to speak uh, authoritatively that that's in, in fact the case. But the bottom line is it's not always cut and dried. There are oftentimes things like living benefits in an annuity, death benefits and other income guarantees that even if the cash value is a certain level, those other benefits that you've paid probably dearly for in the, in, in the form of high expense ratios uh, may make it more valuable to keep than shut down. And anytime you're, you're told that 
shutting something down will take a 14% hit. That deserves a pause because that effectively establishes a uh, incremental hurdle that you have to hop over if you were to put the money somewhere else. So I wish I could answer more pointedly. Um, certainly we have the ability to evaluate folks annuities and give them objective feedback on, but uh, there's just too many unknowns in, in this question to, to speak directly about this person's uh, chips. I believe it's chip chips place uh, question here. Okay. Um, Lance, I'm going to come to you because I do know you have some opinions on annuities too, if you've got anything else to add, but Mike, real quick, anything from the new Harbor side on annuities? Yeah, no, just that I think that 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 surrender charge would have us looking very carefully at the the, um, the details of that annuity. We talk to new people, new clients, and prospects all the time that have annuities that they bought elsewhere, and very often we are are, are giving them advice on how to make a graceful exit. It's probably the best way to put it: make a graceful exit over time. That could include moving the sub account in the annuity to a more conservative allocation. If that makes sense, um, taking out penalty-free amounts each year, usually about 10%, and or annuitizing them to turn them into a pension. The bottom line is more often than not, it makes sense to not immediately surrender that annuity and think about a more graceful exit. Okay, great. Lance, I know you've been biting your tongue there. Go ahead. No, it's exactly fine. Um, look, there's there's only three reasons you need an annuity in, in most cases. One, you're in a you know a lawsuit happy you know type of job, you know uh, some profession where you've got a lot of legal liability. Annuities are judgment proof, so great reason to own it. Another reason is you're really a high income earner, and you really you know you max out your 401k and your IRA, and that barely even dents your income savings. It's a great way to shelter off some assets that grow tax deferred over time. And then three is that really you've got a need for an income stream replacement. So in other words, when you retire, you're going to have so much money coming in for Social Security. And in order, we call it an ALPO diet, which is simply having, making sure you've got a payment every month for the rest of your life that is going to make sure the lights stay on, the food's on the table, house mortgage is paid, whatever it is. Annuities can be great. And right now, the yields that you're getting off of annuities are the best they've been in the last 20 years. Um, so you can lock in a very decent rate of return on an annuity for the first time in a long time because interest rates have come up. So this recent rise in interest rates make annuities very attractive um, for somebody needing a fixed income replacement um, that has the ability to, to take advantage of them and use them appropriately. Um, but, you know, Mike and John were right is that, you know, the, the big problem and the reason that annuities have such a bad rap is because, you know, advisors have been selling them for the last 20 years. Well, I mean, they're solely advisors, but that's all they sell. And, you know, every solution, every, you know, every, it's the only, you know, when, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. It, it's, right. it goes with annuities because of that big commission. And so they've really been missold, mis, you know, mishandled. Annuities like a mutual fund or an ETF or a stock portfolio or a bond, these are all tools in the toolbox. They all have very special needs and very special purposes. And if they're allocated correctly and used properly in a portfolio allocation, they can greatly reduce portfolio volatility, risk of not having income in retirement, um, offset living, uh, living benefits as well as, as medical costs, hospitalization. There's, there's just a ton of things these things can be very beneficial for, you know, and, and one of the best stories, of course, is Ken Lay, who was the CEO of Enron, had like $400 million in annuities and died of a heart attack. So 
you know, all that money was never at risk during the Enron debacle back in 2000 because it was all sheltered inside of annuities. So if you're the CEO of a company, owner of a business, those type of things, annuities are great uh, to shelter assets in what we call what we call start over money. So if everything goes wrong with your business, you've got money that nobody can touch to start over with at some point in the future. So definitely something you should consider. Okay, great points, and, and probably just the end coda on that. If hey, if, if if you think for any of the reasons that that Lance just mentioned there, that you might want to sort of explore what an annuity could do for you, obviously sit down with a financial advisor that's familiar with them, like like all these guys are. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Um, question here about the dollar, and what's interesting is that was kind of all we could talk about for a lot of 2022, but the dollar is really weakened. Um, you just been on a steady, um, you know. I'm going to use it's been deflating and I don't want to get caught up in the definitions of deflation. But the the, the dollar the DXY index has been has been, uh, you know, sagging uh, since November, basically, um, whether this person is correct or not, that we're, we're seeing sort of a bottoming here at the you know 102, 103 level. Um, but I'm just curious, guys, um, what what is your general outlook slash expectation for the role the dollar is going to play? in 2023. Um, John, why don't we start with you? Yeah, the dollar got uh, really oversold short term here and, and uh, has bounced uh, viciously, I'll, I'll say, the last few days. And no small part, I think, in in, in uh, response to the Fed, uh, Fed meeting. Uh, I'm going to try and just share a chart here uh, just to kind of uh, put it into context. Um, let's see here. Um, ba -ba -ba can everybody see that chart? Uh, they can't yet, but now they can. Okay. This is a, a daily chart. Each one of these candlesticks is, is a day within the DXY dollar index. You can see the dollar peaked back in uh, September of last year. Very steady, steady downturn, down, downtrend in the dollar. And just in the last three days, we've had this vicious bounce off of essentially this, this purple line here is what's called the Bollinger Band, 50-day Bollinger Band. That's essentially two standard deviations away from the moving average. Statistically, it's a measure of oversoldness. Very vicious bounce here. Uh, we're approaching the 50-day. That that may pre present some short-term resistance, uh, as well as the 200-day, which is that prior top. Um, you know, I think the path of least resistance right now is probably higher. All bets are off, though, based on what Powell may or may not say. Um, that that certainly has a huge influence on on the dollar and, and the, the monetary policies of other central banks relative to what our Federal Reserve is doing. But yeah, the the expectation we've had is that the dollar got really oversold and that a pretty sharp bounce was was likely. And that's what we've seen here. I think the question was tying it back to precious metals. All else being equal in a vacuum, absolutely a stronger dollar can be a headwind to precious metals on a short term. Uh, and that's, in fact, what, you know, last year was emblematic of. We had a very strong dollar most of last year, as you can see. And uh, precious metals, uh, that and a, and, a, and a rising real interest rate was were some pretty strong head, headwinds for, for precious metals. That's why we, you know, wanted to have hedges in place for some of the precious metal mining companies that, that we own for clients. Uh, so in a vacuum, a stronger dollar can be a significant headwind for, for precious metals. We continue to hedge uh, our, our positions there. Um, but uh, very, very big move here and one that we didn't uh, 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 think was going to be unexpected. It, it got very oversold and it's kind of doing what we thought it would. 
Okay, and real quick, can you just sort of tie that to stocks too? You know, a, a, a fast rising dollar generally tends to kind of weigh on 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 stock prices too, correct? Well, it certainly does for multinational companies, um, companies that export a lot of their goods overseas to folks buying in local currencies that are devalued relative to the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, I think the real story there is is what uh, a stronger dollar means for cash and other things as as an alternative to stocks. Right now, um, you can make the very strong case that stocks are very overvalued, U.S. stocks, very overvalued on a risk-adjusted basis compared to 10-year Treasury bonds. Uh, if, if you wanted to kind of just say, I've got to lock something in for the next 10 years, and I've got a choice to do 10, year, 10 years fixed in a U.S. Treasury bond or 10 years fixed in the S&P 500, right now on a risk-adjusted basis, we think the better bet Again, passively buying and holding from here, we think the better bet is probably 10-year treasury bonds. Now, that's not the, what we recommend, of course, because we're more tactical in our approach and we, we have no intention of suggesting folks buy things and just hold them passively for the next 10 years. But I think the, the interest rate and, and the strength in the dollars really plays into some of the alternatives to stocks uh, that may be more compelling. All right. Um, <clears throat> Mike, I want to come to you with this question that I want to get both firms' responses to. I think it's a good question. Um, when the market goes against your plan, to what extent do you kind of dollar cost average into the lower prices versus saying, hey, wait a minute, I think my thesis is wrong. I need to shift. Right. So let's start with that, Mike. Like how much how much pain do you normally have to experience before you say, oh, you know, maybe I got the wrong plan here? Depends upon what type of investor you are. One thing that I think is really important for everybody is to understand who they are more than anything. What type of investor are you? If you're an investor that's uh, purely values-based, you're based on value, you're, you're searching for bargains, you do your research, you read a company's financials, you look at their cash flow, their price to book, and you're convinced that a company or an industry is a good buy, it could make sense to hold on to a losing position and, and actually dollar cost average into that position. Some great investors have done that in the past, um, Warren Buffett is a, a prime example, but there's many other value investors that have done the same thing. And it's not easy. You have to really fight your own psychology. You have to be able to be kind of solo in the crowd when everyone else is calling you crazy. But if you're that type of person, then yes, it could make great sense to dollar cost average into a position, even if it's losing. All of that should really um, be taken into context, though, with your overall um, financial ability to handle that loss. If you're wrong, your, your position size should be such that you can handle it no matter what. But it's not always bad to do so, to hold on to a losing position and add to it. If you're more tactical, if you're more of a, a money manager like we are, New Harbor, uh, we take a number of different things into, in, into account when we take a position on both technical analysis and fundamental analysis. Some positions that we have are more fundamental in base, uh, fundamentally um, uh, grounded. Like, for instance, our outlook on precious metal mining shares. We're very bullish on them. Uh, technically, the case for gold looks very good, but, but miners is a little less ironclad. And so there you've got to do something. You have to have a plan. You can't just keep dollar cost averaging into a narrow sector like that with no plan. First of all, we keep our position size within limits. We really don't want to be above about 10 or 15% in, in that sector. Secondly, there's a lot of different ways you can protect yourself. We tend to use 
We normally use option positions. We have callers in place on, a, uh, on at least some of our position. And that means we sell calls to establish a ceiling on that position. And then we use that money to buy puts, which puts a floor in on that position. So if the worst happens, like you just asked about the stronger dollar, stronger dollar could tank gold and precious metal. Not always, but it could. And if it does, particularly in conjunction with the weak, weak S&P, we might see gold mining stocks plummet through the floor. We don't really want to be stuck in the position of having to continue to think about dollar cost averaging or take a stop loss on that. So we choose to use options so that we can sit back and sit through that, that process. So my, my best answer is that nobody has the exact right answer because if they did, they would soon have all the money in the world. But um, understand who you are and think about what your plan is going to be if you get there, not at that point. You know, decide if this stock falls by 50%, then I've got enough room to add some to it. Or say, you know, if it falls 15%, I'm out. I've got a stop loss there. Those things are better decided now before you enter the position and still have a clear head about it. All right. Good answer, Mike. And you actually made me think of a really interesting question I'm going to ask you guys after we get through this next uh, few rounds here. Um, and, and just to be super clear, um, I can tell you exactly when the precious uh, metals mining companies are going to tank hard, Mike, because uh, I, I've now passed my window of the wash sale uh, for my tax loss selling. So as soon as I redeploy that back in the mining sector, that's when it's going to crash. So I'll let everybody know that. That'll be my public service to the, the precious metals investing community. Um, hey, folks, if you are liking this format, this monthly format of taking these live questions, uh, do me a favor and just let us know in the live chat. Um, and obviously, if, you, if, if you've got some constructive ideas as well, please put them in there. We, we read them all. But, but if you do like it, let us know because then we'll, we'll keep continuing this. Um, John, real quick, um, before I, I get Lance's answer to that from the RIA side, anything about this question that, that you'd like to add to Mike's or, or did Mike pretty much sum it up for you guys? I'll just add a little bit. Um, so this gets to Mike's point about knowing the kind of investor you, you are. There are some investors, we're not one of them, certainly we, we don't take this approach with our clients that would have kind of a binary uh, all in, all out kind of strategy when different technical levels are, are met. You know, they're very short term traders. They don't care about valuations so much. They care about breakouts, technical breakouts and technical breakdowns. And, and you know, some folks that follow that strategy, they're going to be zero to 100 invested uh, based upon those signals. Our, we, we do very much pay mind to technicals, but with not without the consideration of fundamentals and the recognition of where we are likely in the cycle. So, you know, a technical breakout as strong as, as the one we've just seen is on a, on a textbook basis. There's a lot of other things that temper our, our willingness to respect that signal. So you wouldn't see us, for example, recommending someone to, to dramatically increase their stock exposure based just on this technical breakout. Um, is there a case to be made that, yeah, there, there is a slightly short-term bullish improvement? Certainly there is, and, and that can warrant a, a tactical shift of some measured amount. But it, we don't think it's 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 going to be one that would uh, compel a very dramatic change. Again, getting to know the kind of investor you are and the kind of philosophy and approach that you take. All right, thanks, John. Um, Lance, anything else on this from your 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 firm's end and how you handle this? <laughs> well, no, I, it's you know, there's you know when you're talking about you know investing for something long term, and and again, the question is is when something goes against your plan, right? 
So when you make that that decision, and you know, this is why we talk about you know when we scale into it, when we buy a position, everything starts out as a trade. So it doesn't matter how much I believe in a company fundamentally, um, everything starts as a trade. So I buy the company fundamentally strong, whatever it is. If it begins to work, then to that position, on a scale up, on a scale down, buyer, you should never average down into a stock. You're just destroying more capital trying to figure out where the bottom is that's not investing so you want to be a scale up buyer as things start to prove out so start small have a have a clearly defined level that says if this happens to this position i've made a wrong assumption about my my thesis and a good example of this is emerging markets um you know if you go back to 2009 and there was a lot of arguments back in 2009 that emerging markets were going to outperform domestic stocks etc They've been lagged. They they grossly lagged. That whole thesis about emerging markets outperforming domestic markets has been wrong for 13 years. And so, if you bet that farm on a fundamental bet on emerging markets outperforming domestic, you've grossly lost capital, you know, capital opportunity over the last 13 years. So again, you can be adhered to a thesis. That's fine. But the markets are going to dictate when that thesis is right or wrong, and that's what you need to pay attention to. And again, Warren Buffett's a terrible example to use as a value fundamental investor because, yes, he can buy a stock that's fundamentally valued. Big difference is, is when he buys a company, he takes the seat at the head of the board of directors and tells the company what to do. But he's got no time horizon for the, the Berkshire Hathaway front. When he passes away, Berkshire Hathaway will continue to own those shares for decades and the millenniums into the future, however long that company's around, that stock will continue to grow and do whatever it's going to do. Investors don't have that time, uh, that type of time horizon. Our time horizon is exactly what we have between today and when we need that capital to return for us. So we can't necessarily make a 30-year bet if we've got a 10-year duration on our portfolio because that's when we need the money. So Having a very strong thesis and understanding what that thesis is and what the, the what the outcome is supposed to be is dramatically important to how your portfolio performs over time. And you need to take that into big account when you're managing your risk of loss in that portfolio. All right. Really interesting. And, and just to make sure I heard you correctly, you know, you said you, you kind of make every new position prove itself yeah. before you're willing to put more money into it. Yeah, Paul Tudor Jones is one of the greatest traders of all time. He says, never add to losers. Only losers add to losers. And the reason is, is because once a stock is going down, there's something wrong. There's you, You've made an incorrect assumption about that position. Now, I'm not talking about, two, you know, I buy a stock, it goes down 2 or 3%. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But when you buy a stock and it's down 15, 20, 30, 40%, your assumption about whatever it was is clearly wrong. Don't add to that position. You're just destroying capital. Sell it, walk away from it, reevaluate your thesis, do something else. Because remember, for every investment, we have opportunity costs. I have a decision to make. I can put dead money at work and I can leave it dead for a long period of time. Or I can take dead money, put it into something that's working now, make money now while I'm waiting for that opportunity to come back around, whatever it was. Okay. Um, all right. Well, here's the question that I wanted to ask. And Lance, uh, I'll... I'll let you answer it first and then i'll go back to the new harbor guys um which is you know you guys your your job is to help as many people as possible uh, build wealth over time by navigating what i consider to be sort of increasingly challenging markets lance i think actually when we talked this weekend you said that this was really one of the most challenging times 
to, to manage a portfolio that you've seen in your career. Yep. Um, but as we've tried to underscore in a lot of recent conversations on this channel, you know, it, it's a partnership, right? I mean, really, you as the wealth builder, you're, you're building a team of advisors to help you. We talked about, you know, um, we had Tom Mill right on talking about having a good tax advisor, but you want to be bringing professionals in um, that, that, you know, work together with you uh, to build the best plan for building your wealth over time. And so my question to you guys, and Lance, I, I'll start with you, is what makes a great client? <laughs> uh, so whenever we go through, it, it's always interesting, right? So, you know, a lot of people come to your channel um, as an example, and they they email us and they say, or they email New Harbor, and, and they're like, I want you to manage the money for me. Um, so when we contact them, it's a two-way interview. We're interviewing them as well as they're interviewing us because we need to make sure that the client is going to be a good fit for how we manage money. The worst thing that you want to have happen with a client is they have a thought process or a view that does not align with our views because that's guaranteed it's going to work out to be a very poor relationship. And that it, it looks bad on us. It look, you know, it's not good for the client. So what makes a good client is uh, really kind of three things. One is understanding that markets have risk and that not everything goes up all the time. And there's going to be years that markets do underperform. And so understanding how markets work is very important to having a good relationship. If you have unrealistic expectations, if your expectation is, uh, I'm going to give money to New Harbor or to RA advisors, and they're going to make me 10% a year on my money. You're not going to be a good fit because the expectation is unrealistic. Uh, and you're going to be disappointed in the outcome ultimately. Um, the other thing is, is also understanding that communication is extremely important. Um, and what I mean by that is, is not only communication from us to the client or from New Harbor to their clients, that's, important to have communication coming back the other way. You know, the worst clients are, that I've ever had in, in history are the ones that say, here's my money. I'll, you know, I'll see you later, right? You just do whatever you want to do. You just do however you do it. And, you know, I'll talk to you later. That's terrible because I have to make all these assumptions about who I think you are and what I think your goals are. And then what happens ultimately is that the client calls up, they're upset because we bought you know, some company that they just hate, right? They, they just hate this company. I can't understand why you would buy that company. Well, having a very good, clear communication so that the advisor gets to know the client, what your likes are, what your dislikes are, what your goals are, what your objectives are. This is why we spend so much time with client communication, phone calls, regular meetings, understanding, you know, what your, your needs are, inviting clients to special events that we do, you know, from time to time, having candy coffees and lunch and learns to interface with individuals because the more we get, the more the advisor gets to know who you are personally, the much better your understanding of how the portfolio is going to work and how we need to implement the portfolio uh, to make it profitable over time will work for the client. So communication is, is grossly key. All right. Great answer. Um, all right, Mike, why don't we get to you for the New Harbor side? Um, anything else in addition uh, to what Lance said or, or do you guys have a different take? No, I think, you know, to answer the question of what, what makes a good client and basically somebody that, you know, is looking for, you know, a, you know, a trusted person, a consultant, somebody that's willing to delegate 
you know, that's important. Um, if somebody is purely a do-it-yourselfer and they don't really want to let go of the reins, it's probably not a good client. Now, obviously, somebody that has some assets to manage and somebody that's looking for a coordinated effort, you know, with a team that that really wants to focus on other other things in life than than to sit and study markets for hours a day. So it's as pretty si simple as that, in my opinion. All right, John, anything else? Uh, not really. I, I think I just want to key on Lance's uh, comment that this this is, you know, we, we and I'm sure RAA and Lance's and his team would feel the same way. We're not meant to serve all people, all, all folks. You know, we, we have our style, our philosophy, and it's really important to, that both the client and we affirm that a, a relationship is a good fit at the outset, uh, ideally, because uh, no one wants to enter a relationship that's not the right fit. And we're perfectly at peace when we're not the right fit with someone. Uh, we just want to know that up front. Uh, but I think the guys are covered all the really important points. Okay, great. And, and the point, one point I really want to underscore here is that this is a partnership, right? Like this is, this is not, as Lance said, you just, you know, basically come and dump your capital on their, their desk and then walk away and say, see you in 10 years, right? This is where you guys are, are you know, a keeping them, you're keeping your advisor informed about your life expectations, your goals, what you're trying to do. Um, and you guys are meeting, you know, on some sort of frequency to have a plan and act against the plan and tweak the plan as new data comes on in. Right. So you know, I can't remember which one of you said, but the communication is, is absolutely key. Right. Just, just real quick, by the way, you know, yeah. like I said we get, you know, we just get tons of emails. Uh, my uh, John, myself, we get tons of emails from the wealthy on site. Just because we say no, we're not the right firm for you. Don't get mad. <laughs> you know, I've got some real. I've told people, I've told numerous people, hey, we're not a good fit. Maybe you should go talk to Mike and John over at New Harbor. Uh, that happens probably twice a day. Um, you know, and I get really angry emails back about you know why you know I'm I'm being so rude that I won't take. That's we're not being rude. It's just we're not going to be a good fit. It's not going to be a good marriage. And we don't want you to be disappointed. We want you to have the best possible advisor that's going to give you the, the type of results you want. And if we feel like we're not going to be able to meet what your goals are, we don't want to disappoint you. So we're, we're not being mean or anything. And we're not trying to, you know, we don't want to make you angry. We're just trying to make sure you have the right advisor. Great. And of course, that's what you want an advisor is one that actually has that fiduciary responsibility to say, look, my job's to do what I think is the best thing for you, e even if that's to say I, your business is not the right fit for me. Right. Um, all right. So we're getting to the unfair part of the uh, the hour here where I have to ask you guys big questions and give you almost no time to answer them. I love that um, <clears throat> so uh, we've got a question here about uh, from Jaina. Um, would you recommend selling residential uh, real estate, single family right now? Um, obviously, I think the answer to that is usually specific to somebody's personal situation. But but at a high level, you know, what, what do you guys think? Uh, what, what's your outlook for residential real estate for 2023? Why don't we leave it at that? And if you can answer her question on what the capital gains tax is on selling a, a single family home, great. But uh, yeah, real quick, capital gains is there is no capital gains tax on 250 to 500, depending on whether you're single or joint. Okay. That, just to add and clarify, that is right. And we're not offering tax advice. Exactly. Yeah. We're not tax accountants. But, but <laughs> there, is, there is a, a, a kind of primary residence requirement there. Uh, you got to be in that house 
uh, I think two out of the preceding five years as your primary residence to qualify for that exemption. That same exemption doesn't apply to investment properties right. that are not your primary residence. And um, yeah, so. Okay. And if it is an investment property, and again, you guys aren't tax advisors, but if you if you sell an investment property, you have a window to be able to roll those funds over into another property, don't you? Yeah. 1031 exchanges allow that kind of thing. It's got to be a like-kind property. And that's a whole nother conversation. It can't, you can't take a residential house and move it into farmland, for example, or, or an office building, right? Um, it's got to be kind of like-kind property. Yeah. Again. Um, you know, I, I'm going to ask one other real estate question just sort of while we're on it. We'll get into the details of it in the future video. But um, people can own real estate uh, in their retirement accounts, correct? Yeah, but I highly wouldn't do it. But a couple of reasons. One is, is look, there's there's several things you don't put into a retirement account that I it's, personally I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't put real estate into, you know, my if, if it's investment property. Now, if it's your primary residence, that's one thing. Right. So. If you want to buy your primary residence with your IRA money, you can you can work through that. But hey, I don't think you can actually if you're living I, in it. But yeah, I don't know. But but just however, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. But anything that you know has risk to it. Um, so in other words, you know, a lot of people, as example, they buy their most aggressive stocks inside of their IRA, and they're like, well, if I make a bunch of money, then it'll all be tax deferred or the Roth IRA tax free. Well, the, the problem is, is that you lose all the tax benefits of a piece of real estate or a stock portfolio, whatever it is, inside of a tax deferred or a tax free account. Because if I own a piece of if I own multiple investment properties, right, um, I get to write off, you know, all my expenses, all those type of things. If there's a loss on the property or gain on the property, I get to offset those. You know, I get all those tax benefits that I lose as soon as I stick that side of an IRA, I lose all those tax benefits. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's crucial to kind of make sure that, you know, it sounds cool. I'm going to put this piece of property and it's going to grow up to be thousands of millions of dollars. It, it sounds great, but you actually lose a lot of benefit along the way of doing that. All right. Great. Um, so John, coming back to you real quick. Um, and again, we're in the rapid fire section here. Uh, outlook for residential housing for 2023. Such a local, uh, local phenomenon. You know, let me give you an example. I spoke with a client of, of ours who is a residential home builder up here in, in New England. His pipeline is jam full. Uh, demand is off the charts. It's in a desirable kind of rural area where maybe people are trying to get away from cities. Yet we saw some stats last year about record cancellations of new home projects across the U.S. So such a local factor there to, to speak about the timeliness and, and the uh, ideal timing of selling. I would, I would want to ask... Jana, I hope you pr I pronounced your name correctly. If, if you were to ask us this one-to-one, -one, we'd want to understand what your plans are. Everybody needs a place to live, I think. Um, we, you know, so so a, 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 a question about should I sell, we want to know, well, where are you going to live? You know, what are your choices? There is an opportunity cost to selling if you're having to go and do something else that maybe is a ill-timed purchase or a subpar decision. So, so really hard to, without knowing the details and I'd be the first to say we are not experts on uh, on local real estate. Uh, you need to talk to a, a local market expert. Um, broadly speaking, we think real estate is is still very richly overvalued. Um, we don't think the um, the true dynamics of higher interest rates and the impending what we think are going to be very very much slowdowns in labor markets have truly um, resonated or, or reverberated through 
real estate prices yet. Just look at rents even uh, compared to median wages. They're they're still crazy off the charts. So, so, so that speaks to a, a really fundamental imbalance in, in the residential market uh, that we think has you know probably many, many months, if not years, to, to play out. I hope you're right, because I'm still trying to buy a house and I need prices to come down. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and just to show my hand here, folks, and when I have a bias, I'll let you know. You don't have to agree with it. But, you know, I, I talked to a lot of experts, especially housing experts. We're going to have Nick Jurley on the channel again soon. You know, it's very clear from looking at um, the the uh, real estate charts for the, the major metros that housing prices have rolled over. I mean, we, we, we have seen the peak. They are on their way down. Um, I think the question for this year, from my perspective, is just how far down will they go? And there's lots of factors for that. Don't have time to get into all of them right now. But the big one in my mind is just that mortgage rates are still, you know, more than 2x where they were a year and a half ago. Right. And, and a big question is, is, has that fully mathematically, has just that math alone propagated through housing prices? I would posit no. Not trying to influence you guys, just trying to put fodder here for discussion. Um, Mike, anything to add to John's comment there? Oh, I mean, if I was pressed for... A, a prediction i think maybe the housing market could come down 20 percent from here across the board in the next 18 months or so it only makes sense we've got the biggest bubble in everything everything financial uh in in our lifetimes in my opinion over the last bunch of years and uh normally what happens is you give back that late stage blow off top pretty quickly that late late stage blow off top was you know roughly 20 percent in uh in 2021 and so I know if you give that back, it's not exactly 20% on the downside. It's a little, uh, you know, but it's close to that. So I would say 20 to 30% in the next year or two is very, very likely. I know we're not seeing it yet. It's a wild speculation. If I were in the market to buy a house, I would be very patient, particularly with treasury bills in cash earning over 4%. Um, so that, that's, that's the way I see it. All right, Lance, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Because we're going to make this the last question because we're over the hour. I know you've got a meeting to get to. Uh, so, yeah, no, uh, look, it's always location, location, location. Like I said, you know, um, before, you know, if you're in an area that's landlocked and, you know, there is no more property and the only thing you can do is buy a house and tear it down, those prices aren't going to come down much. Now, if you're in an area where you've got land out the wazoo to build, you just keep building out further and further, those prices are going to come down a lot more. So, you know, it's, it has a lot to do with mortgage rates, too. You know, a lot of people are predicting big 20, 30 percent declines in housing, not saying they're wrong. But if you have a very sharp downturn in mortgage rates, that's going to put a floor under housing prices pretty quickly because there's still a lot of people that want to buy houses. And so as soon as price, as soon as those mortgage rates start coming back down uh, for whatever reason, if the Fed starts cutting aggressively, you have some type of economic recession that drops rates market, markedly, that's going to put a floor under housing. The one thing to pay attention to is, is I know there's a lot of negative commentary out there right now about housing, but pay attention to home builders. Home builders are rocking this year. In fact, they are a lot of them are trade are back almost trading at all time highs. And so the home building market is telling you maybe a little bit different story than a lot of your housing professionals. Right. They, they either know something the rest of us don't or they are the short of the century. And I guess we'll yeah. find out at some point this year. Exactly. Um, all right, guys, well, look, the 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 question I was, was going to try to squeeze in and I'm just not going to right now is gold is it was about precious metals because we've had a ton of questions in the live chat about them but um, I, we're just not going to get anywhere giving only a minute to that uh, discussion so I'll make sure that that's a priority for next month's uh, live Q&A session like this 
Um, all right, well, look, um, I, I wanna thank everybody. Um, real quick, just on the subject of housing, um, guys, just nod or shake your heads. But I imagine that as a financial advisor, if people are trying to make the decisions about whether to buy and sell a house, that that is exactly the type of question they should they should have a conversation with their financial advisor about to figure out, OK, how much can you afford? Where should you be taking the capital from? You know, I'm sure there's a, what type of mortgage should you be taking out? Right. You're all nodding here. Right. Yeah. OK, great. Um, all right. Well, look, um, uh, again, experts here guys thanks thanks to three of you for giving us so much time again today i know you're super busy i know i pulled several of you in away from other meetings um everybody else if you've continued uh, to enjoy this format and this conversation it seems from the live chat that you have but please if you haven't given feedback yet let us know there in the live chat we do read all the comments um, but if you want to see this uh, format continue please do me a favor and support this channel by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it and obviously, uh, we're all huge fans of uh, encouraging people to work with a professional financial advisor. Um, if you've already got a great one to have these conversations with and they understand the macro issues we've talked about, excellent. Stick with them. But if you don't or if you'd like a, a second opinion by one who does, maybe one of the folks you see here on this uh, the screen here with me, uh, then just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. And you can schedule a free consultation with these guys. Doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer. And real quick, just to plug one more thing, I want to remind folks that the Wealthy on Conference uh, is coming up. Uh, we're now a little bit less than a month and a half away. Uh, the early bird price is still out there, so you can lock in the lowest price. Uh, to do that, just go to wealthion.com conference. And with that, we'll end it here. Uh, John, Mike, Lance, thanks so much, guys. I'll see you guys later on this week. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for all the questions, folks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. All right, and everybody else, thanks so much for watching.